0: i feel my anger coming back building up like invisible fire and at last when my soul can no longer resist i go up as mechanical as anything else fist clenched against my lack of will my belly growling mindless as wind for blood i swim up through the fire snakes hot dark wheelcocks prowling the luminous grade of the mare, and i surface with a gulp among the churning waves and smoke
1: welcome to skb i'm your host caroline a university biology professor and true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. This is the story of Cannibal Brothers. Bradfield Haddon Clark was born to wealthy alcoholic parents, Flavia and Haddon Clark. He was born in 1950. Um, I couldn't find his exact birth date, but it was sometime in 1950. In the 1950s, women would still drink while they were pregnant, And so my guess is that Flavia probably continued drinking throughout her pregnancy. When a pregnant woman drinks alcohol throughout her pregnancy, it can lead to a number of issues in that soon to be child. One is fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And children that have um, fetal, that exhibit signs of fetal alcohol um, spectrum disorders, They might have characteristics and behaviors like this, and this is according to the Center for Disease Control. Abnormal facial features, such as a smooth ridge between the nose and the upper lip, where the philtrum is. They may have a small head size, shorter-than-average height, low body weight, poor coordination, hyperactive behavior, difficulty with attention, poor memory, um, later difficulty in school, other learning disabilities, speech and language delays intellectual disabilities or low IQ, poor reasoning and judgment skills, sleep and sucking problems as a baby, vision or hearing problems, problems with the heart, kidney, or bones. So, I mean, that tells you don't drink while you're pregnant, right? And drinking alcohol in the first three months of pregnancy can cause the baby to have abnormal, these abnormal facial features. Um, It also can cause trouble with growth of the central nervous system and, So these are things like, this could lead to things like behavioral problems, and that can occur from drinking alcohol anytime during pregnancy. Remember that the baby's brain is developing out throughout pregnancy, and it can be affected to the exposure of of alcohol, the exposure to alcohol at any time.
0: Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: And growing up around alcohol as a child, children will experience things like parental neglect. Um, There'll be a normalization of alcohol. A lot of times children of alcoholic parents um, will exhibit signs of depression. They will have um, a tendency to be isolated, confusion, trust issues. And as adults, they can have difficulty forming relationships and exhibit extreme self-judgment, fear of abandonment, and attention-seeking behavior. If the primary caregiver is a substance abuser, has an addiction to alcohol, drugs, whatever, then they are likely not going to be giving the attention to this baby that they need to be giving in order for the baby to grow up happy and healthy. One of the things that I talk about a lot is the role of oxytocin in helping a mother and child bond right after pregnancy. So, oxytocin is a hormone that we most often associate with childbirth itself. Oxytocin is released in response to, so, okay, you're pregnant and you're at the end of this the terminal, you're in the terminal stages of your pregnancy and you start to have contractions, right? So the baby has moved down and the stretch on the uterus causes the release of oxytocin. That oxytocin release into the bloodstream then triggers um, an area of the brain Called the posterior pituitary gland to release more oxytocin. So, more oxytocin gets released and then more oxytocin. So, it's a positive feedback sort of mechanism that you get these copious amounts of oxytocin, which cause the uterus to contract um, more forcefully and in quicker succession as more and more oxytocin is dumped into the bloodstream. After birth, oxytocin is important in a couple of things. One is the one is the milk letdown reflex. So that's when you, you've you just had a baby and you hear your baby or some brando baby crying and your breasts start to excrete milk, right? It's <laughs> pretty awesome. So you hear your baby crying and your milk lets down and it just starts to kind of squirt out because baby's hungry. In addition to that, Oxytocin is referred to sometimes as the cuddle hormone, and oxytocin in a romantic relationship helps with bonding after sex. Now, in a newborn, it's important that that there's lots of eye contact between mother and baby. That's why you know that's why the breasts are um, located where they are because that's about the distance a newborn baby can see. So the eye contact between mother and baby stimulates baby to release more oxytocin, stimulates mom to release more oxytocin. So it helps mother and infant uh, bond stronger, more strongly. That doesn't mean that you have to breastfeed in order to have this bonding of oxytocin. But what it does mean is you put down your phone, And you feed your baby and you look in your baby's eyes while you feed your baby, whether it be from a bottle, whether it be from, um, you know, baby food, or if you're breastfeeding. But you have to make lots of eye contact with your baby and coo and cuddle it and all that kind of stuff. And that helps the baby grow up to be a healthy and happy adult. Well, in people who aren't capable of developing that bond with their baby, it can lead to long-term behavioral issues in the child. The, a guy named Jay Pullen, who's the executive director of the Attachment Healing Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he says, any serial killer you have, chances are they have RAD, which is reactive attachment disorder. And reactive attachment disorder in adults, if it's untreated, and the reactive attachment disorder happens when there's no when there isn't any bonding between the baby and the primary caregiver. In adults, reactive attachment disorder, if it's untreated, you will see signs of detachment, withdrawal from connections, an inability to develop and maintain significant relationships, romantic or otherwise, an inability to show affection, resistance to giving and receiving love despite craving it, control issues, anger problems, impulsivity, sense of distrust, and inability to fully grasp emotions, not only your own emotions, but the emotions of others, feelings of loneliness and emptiness, and a lack of a sense of belonging. And it can lead to mental health issues, including anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, dissociative disorders, and personality disorders. These are going to be important um, when we continue on the story of the brothers. Another thing that can happen as a result of this, this lack of bonding between primary caregiver and baby is a conduct disorder. And conduct disorders, um, according to the, the Center for Disease Control, they're characterized by breaking serious rules, such as running away, staying out all night when told not to, or skipping school, being aggressive in a way that causes harm, such as bullying, fighting, or being cruel to animals, lying, stealing, or demanding other people's property on purpose, or damaging other people's property on purpose. And then finally, one of the other conduct disorders that can arise from this is called oppositional defiant disorder. And this is characterized by individual being angry or losing their temper often, often arguing with adults or refusing to comply with the adult's rules or requests, resentful or spiteful, deliberately annoying others or becoming annoyed with others, often blaming other people for one's own mistakes or misbehaviors. So Remember these disorders because they're going to be important as we continue on our journey of the cannibal brothers. So Bradfield Haddon Clark grew up in a dysfunctional household run by alcoholic parents. So not only was there this disadvantage of having parents with substance abuse problems, but the family moved constantly. Often they would move twice a year. And that's because Haddon Clark, Bradfield's father, he had difficulty holding onto to a job. He, he was brilliant. He um, invented a couple of things, which we'll talk about um, in a little while. He invented a couple of really important things, but he would get into altercations with his bosses or not like the way things were running, and so he would leave his jobs. And so the family moved constantly. And according to a 2010 study by um, Oishi and Shimak, the more a child is moved during their adolescence... The poorer performance in school they'll show, they'll have behavioral issues, a lower sense of of well-being in adulthood, and they'll have fewer quality social relationships as adults. And of course, this is not a sweeping thing that, you know, everybody that moves lots during their childhood is going to have behavioral issues or problems as an adult, but it's common. Bradfield, he was an angry child with a mean streak. Flavia described him as mean as a rattlesnake. So This is how she's describing her own child. She was worried that there was something wrong with him. Bradfield was highly intelligent, but he displayed antisocial behavior early on. As a young teenager, he started to steal to steal to buy drugs. And this is actually not even, be, this is before he was even a teenager. He would um, steal to buy drugs. He one time shot the windows out of a neighbor's car just for fun, right? Kind of antisocial behavior there. But by the time he got to college, they really thought he had turned his life around. He attended Ryder College for Management. He was very intelligent. He attended Ryder College for Management. And when he was there, he met a woman named Linda Elwood. He then went to Temple University. And in 1976, he earned his master's in business administration. And at that time, in 1976, getting an MBA from Temple guaranteed him interviews at Fortune 500 places. After Bradfield finished his master's degree, he and Linda K. Elwood got married, and they got married in August of 1977. Their marriage was really short lived, though. They ended up divorced in 1981 after being separated for a year. Bradfield would allege that Linda committed adultery. Who knows if she did or not? She didn't dispute it, so she very well may have cheated on him. Um, Bradfield, they split their everything kind of down the middle. But he gave her $2,000 so he could keep their fancy red Datsun 280ZX. And if you are under the age of probably 30, you've never seen a Datsun. But Datsun, um, it was just a brand of car. Now, I think Nissan bought them out. I don't know, something like that. By the 1980s, Bradfield was um, starting his doctorate and writing his social psychology dissertation. And he sensed early on that computers were the future, So it's hard for us to imagine in 2020, a day when computers were not part of our everyday life. I mean, I'm sitting here in my office at home and I've got one, two, three, four. Well, I've got three computers, two tablets, my cell phone, all within reach, right? So Bradfield was smart and he knew that computers were the the future. And so he moved near Silicon Valley in California. Um, and this was in March of 1981 after his divorce was finalized. He went to Los Gatos, California. He was hired as a software engineer for a company called TimShare, TimShare Incorporated, and they're a computer networking company. He traveled a lot to help troubleshoot things at other locations because of his MBA. So let's take a break to hear from our sponsors Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On a trip to Chicago to troubleshoot some issues at one of the company's branches, Bradfield met and then um, dated for a while a woman named Carolyn Calzavara. Um, they dated for about a year. She broke things off with him in June of 1984, not sure why. Right after this happened, in June of 1984, in the beginning of June, Bradfield began to act strangely. He was mumbling. He had garbled speech. And he would tell co-workers to read a book called Grendel. And Grendel is a retelling of part of the old English poem Beowulf. The intro to the episode was a reading from from part of Grendel. Grendel is one of three antagonists that Beowulf fights, and Grendel is described as an existentialist who cannot communicate with his mute mother, nor, nor with the various monsters and other cave-dwelling creatures that he lives amongst. Grendel is a self-described monster who practices cannibalism. And existentialism is it's a philosophical theory um, that explores the nature of existence, and it does this by really looking at the experience of the human, of the the human subject, not just the thinking part of a human, but the acting, feeling, living human individual. So Grendel is this this self-described monster who feels like he can't communicate with anyone around him, including his own mother. That really says something about Bradfield's state of mind at that moment in time, that he was really... He was really connecting with Grendel. Now, over time that Bradfield had been working at Tim Share, he'd been flirting with a married coworker named Trish Mack, Patricia Mack. They would make out at the office and, you know, fool around at work, that sort of thing. But they'd never slept together and it had never advanced outside of the office. So on Friday, June 20th, 1984, Bradfield invited Trish and her husband Sid over for a barbecue. She and her husband had been to his place for dinner before. Bradfield knew her husband was away and hoped that she would come anyway to the barbecue so that he could take this relationship to the next level. And she did. Um, She showed up and brought with her a bag of potatoes, some broccoli, I think some bread, that sort of thing. And they started to make dinner and they drank pretty heavily. Bradfield had had a few beers before Trish even arrived. They were drinking beer, scotch, gin, and eventually um, Chianti. After dinner, they went to the pool and they sat finishing off that bottle of Chianti. While they were at the pool, down sitting down by the pool, they would they made out a little bit, but it was fairly tame. So they went back to his apartment and they continued their make-out session. He removed her shirt and bra and he started to kiss her breasts, but then he began to um, not just nibble, but bite at her nipples and her breasts. If you have a squeamish stomach, you might want to fast forward by about maybe 30 seconds or so. Trish tried to push him away when he was biting at her breasts and her nipples, but he wouldn't stop biting. Finally, to snap him out of it, Trish slapped him. And so he then, of course, because what else are you going to do when a lady slaps you, he bit her nipple so hard that he severed it off. He totally removed it from her body. She screamed and fell to the floor. I mean, I can't even imagine what sort of pain she must have been in. Just as an aside, one of of Bradfield's neighbors heard Trish's cries for help, but did nothing about it and said nothing, even after hearing that and being questioned by the police. Bradfield lost it, and he began to beat Trish about the head. Eventually, he choked her, and then he beat her some more, banging her head against this brick thing in the wall and he thought he had beat her to death. She was close to it. Instead of calling the police or an ambulance, maybe trying to save this friend of his that he supposedly cared about, he instead grabbed his keys and his cigarettes, and he went for a walk while Trish bled to death on his floor. He returned a little after midnight, and he dragged Trish's now dead body into his bathroom. He removed the rest of her clothing, and he put her into the bathtub. Again, if you you have a a delicate constitution. You might want to fast forward about 30 seconds. Bradfield removed the rest of the breast, um, the breast that he'd bitten the nipple off of. He took it out onto his balcony and he cooked it on the barbecue until it was black. He ate part of it and then he pushed the rest down the bathtub drain. Uh, Apparently there was blood splatter in the bathroom and this may have indicated that Trish might have still been alive when Bradfield removed her breast. He flushed the severed nipple down the toilet. And then, and then, if that weren't enough, if that weren't disgusting enough, he took rubbing alcohol and he poured it on her genitals, and then he set the area on fire. He grabbed a couple of butcher knives um, and proceeded to dismember her body, much as he would have slaughtered a deer. Over the course of the next few hours, he would work on dismembering her down to 11 pieces, stopping to vomit frequently. I don't know if he was vomiting because he was dismembering a body, or if he was vomiting because of how much he had drank. Bradfield didn't want to be seen taking the garbage bags full of Trish out during the day, so he left them in his apartment. Because her car was still at his apartment, he had to move it, so he took it to the Safeway, which is like a grocery store, and then he went in. He bought Spick and Span and sponges so he could clean up all the blood. By this time, Trish's husband had gotten back into town, and he called Bradfield looking for Trish, but Bradfield told him that Trish did not show up for dinner. He didn't bother to tell Sid that he had eaten part of Trish's breast and that she was dead in his bathroom. So let's stop here, take a little break, listen to a word from our sponsors. So Bradfield, the next day, he finished cleaning up the pieces of Trish, put her in bags, hid some in his bedroom, put some in his Dotson 280ZX. But then what do you do when you have a car, an apartment full of a dead girlfriend? Well, you invite two other women over for dinner. So he called a couple other women from work and invited them over for a barbecue that night. So this was June 21st. He managed to make them dinner, but he got sick soon after they, soon after they came over. So, um, you know, he excused himself and they left. Later that same evening, Bradfield disposed of Trish's body in various receptacles around his apartment and, and then he stored a lot of it and a lot of her in the trunk of his car. The police showed up the next day on June 22nd looking for Trish, but Bradfield said he had not seen her. But he let the police come in and look around and they saw nothing. They questioned him for about an hour, and even though there was blood splatter on the carpet and on the couch in the living room, the police did not see it. After the police left, Bradfield attempted suicide. He tried to commit suicide by stabbing himself, but most of the wounds were superficial, right? You can stab a friend, but you can't stab yourself. He called an ambulance, and when he got to the hospital, the hospital called the police, and there was immediately a link to Trish Mack was made. When he was questioned by a Lieutenant Art Roy, who asked him, do you know a Patricia Mack? Bradfield replied, she's dead her body's in the trunk of my car. Police, of course, had a search warrant for Bradfield's apartment. When they went into his apartment, they found hashish and hallucinogens. I'm not sure what hallucinogens they found. I couldn't find that anywhere. I couldn't find that information anywhere. But but let's talk a little bit about hashish and different hallucinogens and the impact of those drugs on the brain. So let's start with hash. Hash or hashish is it is a, a really strong form of marijuana, and it's produced by collecting and compressing trichomes, which is when you store marijuana buds like in a glass jar or something, and then you pull the buds out, one of the things that you'll see left behind are little dusty things, and those are the trichomes. So you take the trichomes and you compress them into these discs, and then you smoke the discs. So basically, it's a really, really, really potent um. Type of marijuana. In the short term, hash can lead to problems with memory and learning, distorted perception, um, like distortions of sight, sounds, time, touch, that sort of thing, difficulty in thinking and problem solving, loss of coordination, increased heart rate, anxiety, panic attacks, those sorts of things. Long term effects of hashish are not fully known. But they think that the psychological effects can include, include paranoia, anxiety, panic attacks, and hallucinations. A couple of the more popular hallucinogenic drugs that were um, big in the 1980s were mescaline. And mescaline is derived from the peyote plant, and it's a partial agonist or initiator of serotonin. So basically, it triggers the release of serotonin. Serotonin helps to modulate feelings of well-being, cognition, memory, learning, reward, and mescaline can lead to perceptual anomalies such as seeing sounds, smelling colors, etc. Long-term use or effects of mescaline can lead to psychosis or flashbacks. Mushrooms were also a big recreational drug back in the 80s. I mean, they still are today. But mushrooms... Their active ingredient is called psychosilin, and what it does is it's a a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So basically, it means that when you take it, it releases huge amounts. You get huge amounts of serotonin into your bloodstream, which causes those feelings of well-being. It can also cause hallucination. If I had to guess, I would think that probably the the hallucinogenic drug that... Bradfield had at his um, apartment was probably LSD or acid. LSD is lysergic acid diethylamide, and it's derived from lysergic acid that's found in the parasitic rye fungus C. purpurea. And LSD acts on the medial prefrontal cortex. And the medial prefrontal cortex is involved in decision making and in the retrieval of long-term memories. LSD works on two pathways, works on the locus ceruleus and the RAF nuclei. And the locus ceruleus makes norepinephrine. So there are axons, and axons are just like the, the roadways that take, um, that take an electrical signal from one place to another in the body. So the locus ceruleus um, makes norepinephrine, which is one of your body's natural adrenaline. So epinephrine and norepinephrine are your body's sort of natural speed. There are axons that go to the cerebellum, which is involved in more primitive movements, like not primitive like, um, you know, primitive peoples, but primitive as in it can be related through all sorts of our ancestors. And the cerebellum is involved in how you walk, um, controlling your heart rate, your breath, those sorts of things. There are also axons that go to thalamus, the hypothalamus, the cerebral cortex, and the hippocampus. The thalamus is imperative in helping to transmit signals between the sensory system and the motor system or the skeletal muscle system. The hypothalamus is the main endocrine organ of the body. So it kind of is your body's central computer. And the hypothalamus makes makes the hormones that are involved in ovulation and the production of sperm. It makes thyroid, um, the thyroid, pre-thyroid hormones. It makes oxytocin. It makes antidiuretic hormones. So it does a whole lot of different stuff. And then the hippocampus is involved in short-term memory. And then the RAF nuclei it's involved in pain regulation and in something called the reticular activating system. And the reticular activating system, it regulates attention, arousal, and the sleep-wake cycle. The RAF nuclei regulates sensory input, so it filters out excess noise. LSD is a partial agonist. LSD is a partial agonist. It's serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine receptors. So serotonin and dopamine are involved in reward-type behaviors. They're also what make you feel good. and norepinephrine, again, is one of your body's natural types of speed. In particular, according to a 2016 study by Carhart and Harris at al., LSD acts as a serotonin-2A receptor agonist. And so agonists, they lead to an increase in the activity of that receptor. So it, they, it ends up increasing the amount of serotonin. And we know serotonin contributes to feelings of well-being and happiness. A lot of your Oh, you know, a lot of your antidepressants are SSRIs or selected serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And what that means is they increase the amount of serotonin that's, that's traveling through your bloodstream. Dopamine is part of our reward system. It's released in response to pleasurable activities, thus reinforcing that behavior. And it's involved, um, dopamine's involved in our ability to think and plan norepinephrine is part of the sympathetic nervous system response and it's released in response to stress or stressful situations. LSD also um, also affects something called the default mode network by disintegrating it. And this allows areas, not, not permanently just while you're on acid, and this allows areas of the brain to communicate that normally do not. And it produces a more integrated pattern of connection through the brain. So when you're, when you take LSD, it causes something called ego dissolution. A lot of times it does. Causes ego dissolution. This is where you experience a compromised sense of self. It can be a spiritual experience, reaching Ananda or Atman if you're a yogi, or gaining a feeling of unity with your surroundings. But it can also be a traumatic experience. It can cause self-disturbances linked to psychosis and schizophrenia. The default mode network is active while we're resting quietly. It's your streaming consciousness. Interestingly, um, the default mode network exhibits different activity in people with schizophrenia, with autistic spectrum disorders, with um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, and even Alzheimer's. The default mode network is made up of the medial prefrontal cortex, which is involved in higher cognition, planning, personality, proper social behavior, those sorts of things. It also includes the posterior cingulate gyrus. And if you're interested in what any of these parts of the brain look like, you can go to my website, www.skbpod.com. And I know I don't need to say the www, but I've got a brain blog on there that goes through all the different parts of the brain. And I have actual brains that I've labeled. So you can see where, um, you can see what parts of the brain I'm talking about. So the posterior cingulate gyrus is involved in emotional responses. The inferior parietal lobule is language comprehension, mathematics, and importantly, body image. The default mode network also includes the lateral temporal cortex. This is where memory, language, and hearing occur. And then a 2001 study published published in Psychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences reported that the lateral temporal cortex was extremely active in patients who were undergoing visual hallucinations. Interesting. The hippocampal formation is thought to be involved in memory, spatial navigation, and control of attention. And then there's also another area called the precunus, which is found within the temporal lobe. And this is what brings memory to consciousness. Where you get an integration of information relating to the perception of the environment. So this is like, if you've ever heard of gestalt therapy, um, If you, I'm not going to go into it, but you can look it up if you're interested. But it's relating to the perception of the environment, cue reactivity, mental imagery strategies, episodic memory retrieval, and effective responses to pain. And the pre is a major component of the default mode network, and it's um, it's involved in self-referential thinking and self-centered men- mental imagery. So being able to reflect upon yourself and understand what's going on inside yourself. Long-term effects of LSD use can be persistent psychosis, which There's visual disturbances, disorganized thinking, paranoia, mood disturbances, or it can also lead to hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, which um, means there are hallucinations, uh, visual disturbances, halos or trails on moving objects, and other neurological disorder-like symptoms. So not good stuff that he had at his disposal in that apartment. And God only knows what he was on the night that he murdered Trish. Bradfield was charged with first-degree murder and infliction of torture, but eventually the torture charges were changed to mutilation of a corpse. At first, they thought, because of the blood splatter, um, that Bradfield had started to dismember Trish while she was still alive. The coroner determined that Trish died of strangulation and stabbing. Bradfield showed no remorse. He would complain about his own pain or about how angry Trish made him when she slapped him. But he would take no responsibility or show any any types of um, or any type of remorse for what he had done. One of the other things that officers found in his apartment, and they brought it up to him later when they were talking to him or interrogating him about the murder. They found this heavy metal magazine with a cartoon of two octopus like aliens talking about capturing women and then cutting them up. When they asked Bradfield about it, he replied, oh, oh, wow, I had not made the connection. End quote. Bradfield was hospitalized for three weeks before being transferred to the judicial system. I couldn't find any information on Bradfield's diagnoses, but I would guess that he had some severe personality disorders. Well, Bradfield was in prison. He talked to his ex-wife, Linda, and he confessed to killing three other women Two in Massachusetts and one in New York. Linda called the local police and, or the FBI. I can't remember which, which one she called. And then they reached out to the police in the areas in Massachusetts and New York, but they didn't follow up with it or couldn't follow up with any of it. So I and I am not a cold case researcher. I don't know if I looked in all the right places or not, but I found some cold cases that have never that obviously they're cold cases because they haven't been solved. From the seventies and eighties, that might be possibilities. So, in Massachusetts, in the late nineteen seventies and eighties, there were three. There are three unsolved murders that I could find. The first one was um, Teresa M. Corley. She was she was murdered on December fourth, nineteen seventy eight. It's thought that Teresa was sexually assaulted at a party by a group of men but that she got away for a little while until they caught up to her, Um, and her nude body was found near the highway in Bellingham, Massachusetts. Next is Lynn Burdick, who was murdered sometime in 1982. She was an 18-year-old. Couldn't find a whole lot of information about her. Then finally, there's Brenda Jean Lacombe, who was murdered sometime in May of 1982, and she was 19 years old. There are four cold cases in New York in the late 70s and early 80s that might be possibilities. The first one is Mary Hines, who was murdered um, May 10th, 1972. And then Lisa Thomas, October 7th, 1974. Or Leslie Sue Zaret, who was murdered October 17th, 1974. Or Carol Ann Ingham, who was killed on January 1st, 1976. To this day, Bradfield claims that he does not remember anything about the murder. Bradfield is just a tiny blip on the story of the Clark family. So join me next time as I dissect the Clark family um, through the generations so we can figure out where did things go wrong? Um, How possibly could one set of parents produce two cannibal brothers? Until next time, thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil.
0: Why did
1: I run? I should know better. It was dark and I was in love.